0: Time to take the next step with Looney Libis. This week, I'm in Boston for Start.coop, which is an accelerator for co-ops. One of the most interesting parts about running an accelerator is you get great guest speakers to show up, people you would otherwise not get to meet. And so right now I have in the booth with me...
1: Jonathan Rosenthal, co-founder of Equal Exchange, the fair trade food company. For those of you who have never
0: heard of it, who oversees Equal Exchange sells coffee, chocolate, anything else?
1: Tea, dried fruits, nuts, olive oil.
0: And and the big thing, it, it was founded back in... <clears throat> mid-80s. Mid-80s, okay, a uh, long time ago. Leading, leading company in the space of what's now called fair trade. You gave some great advice earlier today on what you need to do, very, very first steps when you start a company.
1: My belief is that social change requires us to envision things that don't exist yet or people think aren't possible to do or too idealistic. <clears throat> And so in order to do that, I have found that creating a long term vision, a future vision of what's possible, enables us to make it more real what we're trying to do. And so overcoming the great odds of success become uh, a little bit easier when you have a real picture that you can believe
0: in of what's possible. And, And when you said long term, how long is long term?
1: Well, I think it really depends on what you're doing and who you are. I think my experience that's five years, ten years, I know people that have gone out like a couple hundred years, people that are used to dealing in kind of long-term multi-generational Seven generations? Seven generations. So people that are more rooted in the land.
0: Okay. Can you give me an example? What does one of those vision statements look like?
1: So vision statement could look like in 50 years, all coffee in the United States Will be sourced transparently and directly from farmers, cooperatives of farmers, in a way that the risk of the biological risk of agriculture is shared along the supply chain, and the value that's created now, which is mostly captured in the north or in the consuming countries, is shared more equitably along the supply chain.
0: Okay, And has that different from we, we talk about mission driven for profits in my work has that different from the mission?
1: Well for me the mission is why? Why do we exist?
0: So in this case the why is is it simply there's inequitable Distribution of uh, wealth and value across the supply chain. Well, you? yeah
1: in this case it's to if you were just saying to stick to one product so in the case of coffee the mission could be for an organization to end exploitation in coffee.
0: And how bad is that exploitation? How, how serious is that problem?
1: Well, well, there's depending on whose numbers you believe, there's probably about 25 million people whose primary um, survival and income, if there is income, comes from coffee. Majority of those people are food insecure at sometime during the year. That means they they are not sure that they can provide healthy food to themselves and their family on a regular basis. So many farmers have some subsistence food and then they grow a cash crop, like in this case, coffee. Some farmers are just growing the cash crop and they grow very little food or no food. So yes, coffee can give them more income, but it has to be in a holistic program where it's teaching people again about nutrition, that their ancestors might have known that's gotten lost along the way and how to raise, for example, chickens. Uh, so most people have a small amount of space they could raise chickens and supplement either their income or their food, but most people don't have the know-how any longer in those villages.
0: Or the market to sell the chickens to if, if they sold the, it. Or possibly the, the
1: market, but even for them. Is
0: there any drastic difference between Coffee is a cash crop, and cacao is a cash crop?
1: There are similar patterns in that global capital tried to uh, take coffee from a small farmer model to a plantation model. Same thing happened in cacao. It was less successful in cacao than in coffee. Still the majority of cacao and coffee are grown by small holders. There are some differences. In, In a lot of parts of the coffee growing world, people actually drink coffee. There's not that many cacao farmers that eat chocolate in a few countries, but in Africa, very few cacao farmers have ever tasted chocolate.
0: We're way off topic on entrepreneurship, but but I'm fascinated. How many people in the world grow coffee or or cacao?
1: I don't know the cacao numbers. I think it's estimated 25 million people are directly involved in the growing and processing of coffee.
0: It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. All right, so back to, I think you said earlier, 1984 you you and two others decided to go and tackle this problem with a company with you know it's a co-op but it's still a for-profit model it's it's, it's a profitable mm-hmm. company at this point how did you wind up turning into a co-op where, where did that piece come from
1: the three of us that started equal exchange met uh, we were working in a food cooperative warehouse so it was a wholesale organization owned by the the cooperative stores and what we call buying clubs. They owned their own warehouse. So we worked in the warehouse. The idea to become a worker co-op was somewhat in response to our political ideals, but also our experience was that this co-op warehouse was run by a board of directors that had representatives from the individual consumer co-ops. They had little focus on the workers. We had very little voice and felt exploited.
0: Okay, so in this case, they were... Food co-ops, but food co-ops tend to be consumer co-ops. The mm-hmm. people buying the food own the co-op, not the people working there.
1: Yeah, there are a few worker-owned, and there's some hybrid, but mostly in the U.S., food co-ops are consumer-owned.
0: And, owned. and when, what we're learning here at, at Co-op is that co-op is a big, broad term. Yes. So, so there are consumer co-ops where the customers own the company. There are worker co-ops where the workers own the company. You worked at a warehouse owned by companies. That would be a producer co-op or purchasing co-op.
1: Well, other consumer co-ops. So it's a warehouse owned by consumer food co-ops.
0: But but the warehouse was a shared resource owned by the consumer co-ops.
1: And it was run as a cooperative owned by the member co-ops, which were. But the workers didn't have a strong voice.
0: Sure. So but it was, so we'll call that a production co-op.
1: It was a service co-op, really.
0: Right. Okay. Service co-op. All right. It it, it gets crazy complicated and then and then there are some orgs that are multi-stakeholder co-ops and multiple shareholders that hold that hold different uh, positions within the organization yeah so what were three big advantages to forming this as a co-op
1: well part of our debate we were clear we wanted to try and start a business to see essentially could you be a socialist or could To put it another way, could we create a business that paid farmers as high a price as we thought possible and stay alive in the marketplace? Like, how do you do that? And so we wanted to be kind of as idealistic as possible. So the cooperative form seemed to fit our values the best from anything we saw. We did debate quite a bit between being a nonprofit and a co-op, which would be a for-profit, but cooperatively owned and managed the argument for the co-op was that we could be a better example one of our goals was to be an example to business that there's a different way to run a business instead of maximizing profit maximizing social well-being and community well-being and so we felt that if we were a nonprofit and getting subsidy in terms of grants to do things business wouldn't take us seriously Mm
0: -hmm.
1: on the other hand we're worried with our strongly idealistic model that if we didn't do it as a non-profit that we just wouldn't be able to to survive in okay. the marketplace
0: okay and ultimately it is a business right? ultimately it's, it's a business 100 and something employees
1: and no matter how it de- yeah today sales of equal exchange are a little over 70 million dollars a year there's i don't know 175 workers something like that spread out around the united states they have strong investment in a sister co-op in canada another one in england So they're branching out bit by bit. More
0: more complex. More complex. You you get that with multinationals if you're a traditional company, too. Exactly. Um, So it works, or it has worked.
1: Yeah, it it certainly has worked until now. And
0: the downside of this structure over traditional business?
1: Well, some people would see the downside. The way we set up Equal Exchange, we as the co-founders didn't really get paid for our innovation and intellectual capital, if you want to consider it a kind of capital. Um, We gave away the companies the way some people would see it. So I don't have that money to live a life of luxury or retire with a lot of money in the bank. I don't necessarily consider that a significant downside because it wasn't my goal, but some people would see that as a downside. The other, in a sort of practical hands-on side, I think the cooperative decision-making process and cooperative ownership structure, which are connected but can be somewhat separate, they tend to lead to somewhat conservative decision making, is my experience. And so, for one, you give up a lot of control compared to a traditional entrepreneur who's battling with VCs for how much control. Yeah,
0: yeah. I own 51% of the company. I get to make you get decisions. to make decisions. We to Zuckerberg on on Capitol Hill saying basically, yeah, I'm giving yeah. you the finger. It's my company. Yeah. No way.
1: So in a in a in a democratic cooperative, the will of the members is at least on big decisions is you have to convince members to go along with it. So decisions often take longer. And I would say cooperative decision-making tends to be a bit more conservative in terms of risk-taking, certainly compared to entrepreneurs who often you know, risk their house, their family, <laughs> their lives, whatever, to build a business. In a co-op, it's shared risk. But you tend and, and not what, to And was, was
0: that true back in the early 90s when it was 10, 15 people versus, you know, 100? Or did it just grow as the size of the team grew? Because I see that same pattern in traditional companies when you get to be... Well, when, when you're worried about 100 paychecks and payroll, you start to make less uh, risky decisions.
1: I think that's a natural function of size and cooperative decision-making people tend to take... Less risk right. that's just uh, the nature of that kind of group decision-making some of that is offset in my experience by making more thoughtful decision-making much as people make the argument that having truly diverse workforce you have a uh, more varied point of views and viewpoints and input and you come up with better decisions even though sometimes there's more conflict and, and they so this want- is similar it's a little bit slower but you get richer decisions, and everybody that's impacted has some voice, which means you have less people that are laying traps and obstacles, preventing change.
0: Okay, right. and, but everything else that aside, like how you're running the company, it's still a business, and it still looks and feels and acts like a business. Yeah. And customers who are buying coffee, you know, they get the message on the on the label, but if they don't read the message, it's it's a coffee company, and so in the end, it's still business first. Or it's still well, it's still, still trying business first where I define that, just to be clear, yeah. As you're solving a problem that some customer wants wants enough to pay for. It.
1: Yes. I think in the case of equal exchange, like many entrepreneurial ventures, the problem we saw was not one that if we did focus groups, um our, our potential customers would I could identify.
0: Right? so Sure, but Steve Jobs would say the same thing.
1: Yeah, so it was a problem that we saw and we saw a potential solution to it, that's true. Again, when you're doing it in a cooperative then you have to get everybody to come to some degree of consensus around what is the nature of the problem and what are the boundaries of the solution. One of the great advantages to co-ops is you are pretty much forced by the structure to have pretty clear value proposition and pretty clear desired outcomes and then since everybody has some say and an ownership stake in it, you it tends to be easier to build alignment around ideas. And alignment means you can move faster. So you're going slower making decisions, but then you have more alignment, so you're going faster. Okay. I'm not saying it's a perfect trade-off. But
0: just to wrap that back, but yeah. but just, just to be clear on what you just said, that's only true in the worker co-op model. You were frustrated back in the 80s being a worker at a Co-op owned by co-ops where A you secondary had, level co-op. Yeah, was, where you didn't have any say. The workers didn't, were, were not the voice of. I
1: that. think you know some of those models have evolved now so that there's more hybrid co-ops. Like Mondragon in Spain has one of the largest retail operations in the Iberian Peninsula, and it's a hybrid worker consumer co-op.
0: Yeah, and and over, I'm I'm a former techie, and in the tech world, the past few years we've gotten things like holocracy that have shown up where. All of a sudden now, everybody has a voice in governance, but not necessarily any ownership stake in that
1: yeah. company. Yeah, and right? sociocracy is another variant. Yeah. So of it. you yep.
0: can you can break this up. It doesn't have to simply be one person, one vote, one person, one share. It, it is, is is a design decision. When you sit down to design your company, who owns it? Who gets to run it? Who gets to say who gets to run it? Who gets to say who gets to own it? How are those shares shared? How much do they cost? Who do you sell them to? Yeah. All those things are all of those things are variables. Yes. And by default, we simply get the traditional ownership model of you have investors come in with money, they get they get to say who runs it. And the workers, you know, get fired and fired or when management says they need to.
1: Well, I think one of the things to understand, just to point out, there's a huge range in what it, what is a worker co-op. So some worker co-ops, everybody's in on every decision. Or almost every big decision. There are no bosses. It's a very flat non hierarchical. That's at one end of the spectrum. People sometimes feel like that's so idealistic can it work? And there are people that make that work for sure, though it's pretty challenging. At the other end of the spectrum, we have uh, ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Programs. And in those, often uh, workers have almost no say in anything, but they have a right to a share of profits. And there's no outside owners that are extracting.
0: Yeah, and we can go Money. way down that hole, which I'm not going to do yeah. today, but if you go online and you search ESOP, ESOP, you'll find it actually is in the same set of laws as 401Ks and IRAs, mm-hmm. and the benefits are for retirement, not for, more. usually, the benefits are more aimed at retirement than aimed at increasing your income in your, say, right now.
1: It's about where profits go. It's not how the companies run generally. Yeah. There are some hybrids again, but it's also much more established. So there are probably 10,000 Democratic worker co-op jobs in the U.S., maybe 15 by now. Uh, there are 10 million ESOP jobs. So it's it's at a whole other scale. And then, of course, there's all kinds of models in between that have hierarchy, but still the big decisions are democratically done by everybody. There's, oh, sir. And there's, there's many models.
0: There's probably a million jobs in the tech space with stock options, which is, yes. which is yet another, another way of share ownership, but not really, and definitely no say yeah yeah all right well we'll we'll save all that for another episode okay so thank you for coming today it was my
1: pleasure uh
0: until next time